Andrew Beckett's a rising legal star. He's a senior associate who was chosen to lead one of his firm's biggest cases. But he has a secret. Andrew's a gay man who's battling AIDS. After one of the partners notices a lesion on his forehead and a filing mysteriously goes missing, Andrew's fired. He teams up with the only lawyer who will take his case, and together they fight against the pernicious discrimination that cost Andrew his job and his dignity. Today, we're talking about Philadelphia. In this courtroom, Mr. Miller, justice is blind to matters of race, creed, color, religion, and sexual orientation. With all due respect, Your Honor, we don't live in this courtroom, no, do we? Welcome to the Pro Se Movie Club. I'm Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hi, guys. And Alex Lawson. This is the uh, this is the Pro Se Movie Club swan song, and I think we uh, uh, chose a chose a really interesting one to go out on. Yeah, I I want to just get everybody's gut reaction to this movie. I assume, like me, uh, we've all seen it many times. Yes. I think this was my I don't know sixth or seventh viewing of this movie in my lifetime. It's one that I go back to a lot. Um, what did you guys think of the movie? Uh, I was telling you guys before we recorded this. Um, I. I saw this movie like probably when I was too young. Like it was, it was just kind of like on in my house a lot. I think we had the VHS, and I kind of like it was comfort food for me. And that like I kind of just allow myself to disappear into these like extremely engaging monologues delivered by some of the best actors of our time: Denzel, Tom Hanks, Jason Robards. Yep. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't know if I'd watched it in full since I became a legal journalist, <laughs> oh. uh, which kind of opens your eyes and makes you look at it slightly differently. It's still, it's still an incredible movie, um, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that you didn't really perceive it as a legal movie before you became a reporter because I, I, you know, w- when you read reviews of this movie from the time, the perception was that the legal angle here was sort of the weakest part of the film that it was this genre convention that they had crammed a very controversial movie into to get it made and Mm -hmm. that you know Jonathan Demme was coming off of Silence of the Lambs and a bunch of very interesting artsy movies and the vibe that you read in these reviews is we wish they had unleashed him on this you know the one of the biggest issues of our time and instead we got a movie that you know had a wonderful performance by Tom Hanks, had this up-and-comer in Denzel, but maybe it it, it could have been more profound or it could have been more nuanced if it had avoided this legal storyline. And I, I guess I agree to that to a certain extent when you're watching it. It is these two stories sort of going in tandem and maybe one could have been could have been handled a little bit more, um, you know, with a little bit more detail if, if we hadn't had so much legal stuff to chew through. But mm-hmm. Compared to some of the movies that we've watched, I th- I thought it it did everything that it needed to do. It avoided so many of the tropes that we've hated about legal movies. I I really enjoyed it as a legal movie. I actually really like that it has the legal framework. And my reasoning is this. This was one of the first mainstream Hollywood movies to depict HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And I think that by framing it in a very um, – you know, traditional, you know, you're going to be in a courtroom, you're going to see a case play out, the kind of movie archetype that a lot of people have seen, it was more accessible to the average person that maybe wouldn't have seen this movie otherwise. For sure. So in that way, I think it's really, it's got the impact they intended. Um, On my rewatch this time, like I said, I've watched it maybe six or seven times uh, over the years. 
I was really struck by how HIV and AIDS is no longer the death sentence that it once was. Right. And you would think that because we've made great strides in that area, this movie would be undercut in some way. That, you know, as a more modern person watching yeah. it, it maybe wouldn't have that same impact. And I found the opposite to be true. I cried watching this movie, even though I know all <laughs> the beats of this movie. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I think it's the power of those performances that you Definitely. were mentioning, Bill. Um, let's talk about some of them. Tom Hanks won a Academy Award for his portrayal of of Andrew Beckett in this movie. Uh, yeah, his it was his first Oscar, the first of two he would win consecutively. Forrest Gump the next year, and he's he's great, and it's a very showy part. And this is like people were really raking up accolades for performances like this back then. You know, you had you would have some kind of affliction. He's he obviously like passes out in open court. He has a very emotional. I guess he doesn't die on screen, but he is like you know it's sort of a right. sort of a deathbed scene um this also though um if you guys will indulge me in a in a tom hanks sort of oscar conspiracy theory type of sure uh, digression here to an extent we will (laughs) this kind of this and forrest gump kind of nukes his like viability to ever win one like ever again because it's so rare to go back to back and then like has anyone seen saving private ryan lately it's an amazing performance it's like like reel off apollo 13 saving private ryan cast away later captain phillips nominated for several of these but it's almost like he's got such a high hill to climb uh because he like went back to back here Um, well but it's an amazing performance and speaking of you know in a, a performance relative to another performance, you know, Denzel was coming off of in 1990 or 91 that he had won for Glory as Best Supporting Actor. Oh, I thought it was like 89. But Maybe anyway, it, was 89. It, was, it, it was recent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it just made me think about the the Denzel performance because obviously this movie is more – the story itself is more centered on Andrew Beckett, on, on Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks did win the Oscar. But, man – Denzel was good. <laughs> the, the, yeah. It's a it's a meatier part to 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 deal with, you know, everything that that Denzel grapples with and so much of what what I think we take away from this movie in 2021 as much as uh the Andrew's story is so affecting is also Denzel's growth throughout the movie and and uh, what a what an awesome performance by him. This came up on the rewatchables a couple weeks ago when they did Rain Man when they talked about how Dustin Hoffman has the showy part and Tom Cruise actually has the heavier lifting. It's not it's not a one to one comparison, but it, it does remind me of that where he's got to like you know he goes on the journey and you know he's got all the you know playing off to do like Tom Hanks is care like he obviously has the stakes are very high for him. But it's just sort of like a, there's not much of a journey there. Um, but uh, anyway, it's like the 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 way that these monologues just spill out of his mouth when he's in open court talking about Denzel now is just like transcendent, amazing stuff. Yeah, both of the leads in this movie so good. But I think we should at least do a couple mentions of yes. some of the supporting cast because there's some really good players in that arena too. We have Jason Robards playing the the sort of really bad partner that fires Andrew in the story. Um, He's very good in it. Um, And Antonio Banderas has a smaller but affecting role. Very small. Very, I I feel like he was lightly sketched. He was. I I read some articles about that that said that they had filmed some more domestic scenes between Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas and some of that got cut in the final version. And this was, and I just do, I do want to allude to it. You kind of referenced that there was a certain amount of skepticism, Bill, uh, or not skepticism, but um, sort of a guarded nature when the when the reviews came out there was there was like from the gay community even at the time i'm not doing the thing where you're saying like oh this would never get made this way today even at the time a lot of gay activists uh aids activists 
um, you know, would say like that the, you know, the actual sort of gayness of the movie is like somewhat muted and maybe like, you know, it's like too, uh, it's, you know, it's maybe too much focused on a guy overcoming his bigotry or whatever. Well, I was going to say, and we, fo- you know, like I said, we, we focus on Denzel's growth and you mentioned that there isn't much, you know, change for Andrew. And I think that is true. There's to a certain extent, he's a monolith in the movie yeah. and maybe in, a later movie or something told today, he would be a bit more complex yeah. or more sort of like de- there would be more detail to the character. But the ca- but the rest of the cast is also quite good. There's, did, did you already mention Mary Steenburgen yet? I didn't, the, but yes. she's great as um, the lawyer who goes up in court against Denzel. Oh, yes. And I think we would be remiss if we did not give a shout out to Daniel Von Bargen, uh, who <laughs> yes. is the foreman of the jury, who uh, longtime character actor. He was in a lot of action movies and thrillers in the late 80s and early 90s. Well, I was going to say, what do you guys think of when you see his face? Do you have a specific thing? Ooh. Well, because so, I have a specific one. I, I, if, if I'm being honest with you, Broken Arrow. Okay. Wow. See, I, I, that is not my answer. I was thinking uh, Kruger. It was one of George's bosses in the oh, later seasons sure. of Seinfeld. Yes. Amazing Great. performance. Great. The and guy then, who was like the head of a multi-million dollar company and just did not care about anything. He also, but he had a long and successful oh, TV yeah. career after that. So yeah. I just um, he. It's one tiny little scene, but he has a uh, he. It's important, and I think he does a great job in this role. I also wanted to mention while we're sort of wrapping out the ins and outs of the production of the movie. Every time I think of this movie, I think of Bruce Springsteen well, because yeah. the iconic song Streets of Philadelphia <laughs> is such a like critical part to this movie and also just how it was promoted. It was just everywhere, that song. And Neil Young also had a tie-in song uh, related to this movie as well. They were both nominated for an Oscar and, yeah. and the Bruce song won. The Neil Young song is just called Philadelphia. Yeah. The Bruce song is Streets of Philadelphia. Please try and keep up, everybody. <laughs> Someone asked me, I, I I told a friend that we were doing this this show on on this episode of the of the movie club and um they were like are you going to talk about the song and i was like well my co-hosts are a new jersey native and a current new jersey resident we have to rap about i do want to be able to go home and leave the studio and get admitted back into the garden state yeah, I right, think right. if i don't say this they won't take me back i uh i'm i'm not like a huge springsteen head i don't i'm not a hater either but i don't like go really deep on the catalog but what i am is a sucker for any time a springsteen song shows up in a movie and this is um i was talking to steve even before we rolled and just like the the, the like basically the b-roll of the city and the like low hum when the it's song awesome. rises yeah. amazing like just gets you right in the mood there so I think it's time for us to start diving into the actual movie itself and get to some of our big legal scenes. But just for a bit of setup about how this all begins, the movie's set in the early 90s. We meet two opposing lawyers. They're talking to a judge about a real estate public nuisance lawsuit. Andrew Beckett, played by Tom Hanks, is the smart corporate lawyer. He's facing off against Joe Miller, who... Definitely comes off as scrappier, but yeah. no less formidable. Just yep. a different style attorney. He's um, the, you see like through, yeah, you see him in commercials throughout the movie. So <laughs> yes. he's he's definitely got that vibe, but but no less a uh, winner in terms of his legal prowess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have some early scenes in the movie where we learn that Andrew is well liked at his firm. Uh, that's Wyant Wheeler Hellerman, Hellerman Tetlow and Brown. Um, great law firm name great. and very good. pronounced beautifully by Denzel at multiple points in the <laughs> yes. movie. It's like ASMR when he just says it gets, the, the it gets brought firm. up so often yes. in this movie. Um, yeah. So you find out that people like him at the firm, but he is keeping to himself a diagnosis of AIDS. He mm-hmm. hasn't told anyone he works with. I thought it was a nice touch that they did not 
try to derive some major reveal or anything. They just, you just are there with him and it's, it's apparent to you and you know already and his mom knows already. And yes. I thought that was a nice sort of yeah. subtle touch. And, and once they've done that world setting, you see that Andrew is not only well liked at the firm, but he's very successful. He has a meeting with the big wigs of the firm and they give him the attaboy, pat him on the back, give him the big case. Oh yeah. The big case, which is a bet the company copyright law. I, 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 I thought like of you that. right away, sir. <laughs> I was like, I know Bill's gonna have something to say about this. It I was, don't know. It basically <laughs> Highline. It, it it's like it was great. It read sort of like <laughs> it, it's an antitrust case yeah. against they were trying to use copyright law to put out a smaller company out of business. And uh, yeah, I don't really know. It's good stuff. It's, uh, yeah. I'm glad that got two <laughs> thumbs up from you. I was going to ask your reaction for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So in that meeting where everything's going great, it's very chummy. He's excited to take on this new challenge. Yep. One of the partners does notice a lesion on his forehead and he uh, makes up an excuse about a racquetball accident, moves on. But that sort of sets in motion the rest of the movie. Yeah. Andrew continues to work really hard. He's completing an important complaint for that client, um, leaves it on his desk and then gets a frantic call about how it's mysteriously disappeared only to, quote, be found. From a very sweaty Bradley Woodford, who we'll talk about <laughs> and, later. Right. And important to note that he was out of pocket because he had had a, um, you know, an incident with his with his illness. Right. Yes. So it is found at the very last minute and still filed. So nothing goes wrong for the client, mm -hmm. but things go wrong for Andrew. He's called in and fired after that incident. That leads us to the point in the movie where he is out trying to find a lawyer to bring a wrongful termination suit. And he meets up with Denzel. What did you guys think about this first meeting between the two of them as potential attorney and client? Well, it's great. It's a great coda to, um, well, it's not a coda. It's in the beginning of the movie. But the, um, you know, it's important that we see them kind of doing the lawyer frenemy sparring thing when they're sitting in front of the judge on that public nuisance case or whatever they're uh, lightly litigating over. And then, I mean, it's it's just a great way to quickly communicate the sort of desperation that he's gone through. He's like, okay, well, I knew this lawyer that I was uh, you know, involved in litigation with uh, a long time ago, or we don't know how long it was, but it's like, this is who I'm turning to now. And of course, we're then told um, that he's been to nine lawyers uh, are already before he went to Very uh, to astutely. Joe asks that question. How many yes. people did you yeah. go through before you got to me? Yeah. And I really like the framing of this scene. Um, you see Joe clearly focusing on everything that Andrew touches on his desk while they're sure. having the banter in the beginning. Um, it really sets up the idea that Joe's very uncomfortable with a man who has AIDS being in his office. Which is one of our two major storylines. And then it also sets up our other major storyline, which is that it takes us and gives us a very nice scene setter of what this case is that that Andrew wants to bring. All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. Didn't you have an obligation to tell your employer you had this dreaded, deadly, infectious disease? That's not the point. From the day they hired me, the day I was fired, I served my clients consistently, thoroughly, with absolute excellence. If they hadn't fired me, that's what I'd be doing today. And they don't want to fire you for having AIDS, so in spite of your brilliance, they'd make you look incompetent, thus the mysterious lost file? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Correct. I was sabotaged. I don't buy it, Counselor. That's very disappointing. 
I don't see a case. I have a case. If you don't want it for personal reasons. Thank you, that's correct. I don't. Well, thank you for your time, Counselor. And then my sort of my my hot take here is is even though like Tom Hanks has a lot of like Oscar Beatty, like in the hospital deathbed type scenes, I think he locks up the statue right after this scene when he walks out of the office. And of course, we get the Bruce song rising again. And he's just like got this like listless look on his face and the way he like stares off into the middle distance. It like it gives me chills just thinking. Well, about he puts it. on a brave face in the office. Yes. And then he gets outside and you can tell it really is hurting him that he's, that, like deflating. That he's now seen 10 attorneys and no one will take oh, his case. He's like looking around bewildered. It's 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 brutal stuff. Yeah. And Joe doesn't take the case at first. Right. He um, is clearly freaked out about having a person who has AIDS that's come to his office. He talks to his doctor about the transmissibility of the disease. He goes home and talks to his wife about how he can't take a client that he doesn't even want to breathe on him. The wife essentially calls him a bigot, tells him it's a bad, bad, you know, take on all of this, but bad look, Joe. I mean, yeah, she, she basically does say that, but Joe is clearly grappling with his own feelings here in these early going scenes. And we have a little happenstance in the movie that brings them back together. Uh, Both Joe and Andrew end up at a library doing research separately, see each other and come together and start talking about the case. And I think there's a very telling moment beforehand. Well, I I wanted to get the read from you guys. Uh, A white police officer walks by him at the table when he's sitting there and um, glares at him. Yeah, and yeah. we are to believe that I, I right that 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 Joe is now experiencing the it 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 it's fleeting enough that I I wasn't yeah. sure if that was quite the message the movie was sending, but um you know I I think what we see in this scene is at least for me I saw that and then you see Joe watch Andrew experiencing yes. his own discrimination. Yeah. And, you know, those two things of relating it to myself, but also seeing in a way that he can't ignore mm-hmm. the, the you know, how horrible it is to be to be judged by someone and to be asked to leave a, a public place. Yeah. He's um, also visibly sicker at this point. It, it gives yeah. us a reason for why Joe has begun down this path that we ultimately see him take, um, you know, of, of learning about himself and changing. Yeah, I certainly don't think it was an accident that they cast an African-American in the role of Joe. I think there's sort of two things going on there. One, um, that community has not had the greatest track record of embracing the gay community. Yeah. And at the same time, they face their own discrimination. And I think that's critical to Joe's evolution right. here. So they do start talking about the case Andrew is currently representing himself. Well, yeah, he I, says, I, I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I, I I love that one. He's like, did you ever find a lawyer? He's like, I'm a lawyer. It's just like, <laughs> I just love the little rap. They do. I'm a pilot. Yeah. I can fly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the thing I like the most about this scene is actually when they start reading precedent back and forth to one another uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Andrew has the book open and is clearly touching the book mm-hmm. and slides it across the table And Joe is willing to take the book and touch it as well, which he would not have done at that first meeting in his office when he was clocking everything Andrew touched so he could stay away from it. So that's a nice little bit of, you know, work with props there. Yeah. Um, But also it's this this next bit where they read to each other does encapsulate some basic understanding of discrimination law, which I think for somebody like me that loves employment law and has followed it for years, I don't need this. But I think that 
a lay person does. It's not always exactly clear where people cross the line into actionable discrimination in the workplace. So this is a pretty good summation. So you got a you got a relevant precedent? Mm-hmm. Your line decision. All right. Supreme Court. The Federal Vocational Rehabilitation Act of 1973 prohibits discrimination against otherwise qualified handicapped persons who are able to perform the duties required by their employment. Although the ruling did not address the specific issue of HIV and AIDS discrimination. Subsequent decisions have held that AIDS is protected as a handicap under law not only because of the physical limitations it imposes, but because the prejudice surrounding AIDS exacts a social death which which precedes the actual physical one. This is the essence of discrimination. Formulating opinions about others not based on their individual merits but rather on their membership in a group with assumed characteristics. So now we're at a point in the movie where we have our team together. Joe is going to work with Andrew and represent him. We, we make it to trial. We've had a, a few scenes in the interim where the big law uh, folks are talking about all the nefarious ways that they want to get out of any any culpability for firing Andrew. Yes. We see Denzel serve oh, the, yeah. the attorneys during a Sixers game yep. with Featuring Dr. J. Yeah. Great scene. <laughs> what a scene. I was like, we're not going to spend time on that here. But I mean, the, like, what a scene. I mean, yep. he's got he's got like a bag of popcorn yep. in his hand. R.I.P. The Spectrum, the Sixers <laughs> old know, stadium. I would say that that scene is a little meaningless in terms of a cameo, but it's actually not because I think you want they wanted to show that these men working, these partners at this law firm, have so much power that they can oh, sure. get legendary people to come by and say hello Listen, while they're watching a game in their the, box. Oh, yeah, we're in the box Sort of seats. that kind of thing. And then they're going to retire to the bowels of the arena to to talk about their, their nefarious plans to, to, <laughs> right. to discredit the guy. Yeah. Yeah, so we do get into court, though, and I love Denzel's opening statement. I wanted to hear how you guys feel about it. I think it's one of the best... Um, monologues he's, he delivers in the movie. There's certain points that I must prove to you. Point number one, Andrew Beckett was, is a brilliant lawyer, great lawyer. Point number two, Andrew Beckett, afflicted with a debilitating disease, made the understandable, the personal, the legal choice to keep the fact of his illness to himself. Point number three, his employer's discovered his illness and ladies and gentlemen the illness i'm referring to is aids point number four they panicked and in their panic they did what most of us would like to do with aids which is just get it and everybody who has it as far away from the rest of us as possible now the behavior of andrew beckett's employers may seem reasonable to you does to me. After all, AIDS is a deadly, incurable disease. But no matter how you come to judge 
Charles Wheeler and his partners in ethical, moral, and in human terms, the fact of the matter is, when they fired Andrew Beckett because he had AIDS, they broke the law. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great for a number of reasons, but uh, it's it's one type of argument that we've seen in a number of legal movies. It's a classic play, which is what you as the jury are feeling about this case is good and fine and natural. That's okay for you to feel it. But you feeling it is not what is at issue in this case. Yep. And you yeah. feeling it does not make my opponent right. And it's sort of a own your bad facts kind of situation yep. and then spin it your own way. It's a it's a masterful version of that. I uh, also want to talk about uh, the way Demi shoots uh, both this scene and then also much of the movie. I'm sure you guys probably clocked it. The fact that for much of the movie, the characters are speaking right into the camera. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that has a couple of different effects depending on the context of the scene. Uh, both Denzel and Mary Steenburgen deliver, they're talking to the jury, but the way the shot is framed, they're looking right at us. And this, of course, has the effect of like, almost like a seminar, like you just said, Bill. Like, it's almost like we are the jury, of course, in that context, and we're having it explained to us. This is what we need to examine uh, in this case. You know, but in an earlier scene, when like the guys, when the senior partners are literally about to fire Andy for what he believes are discriminatory reasons, and it's like there's such menace in the way they are looking like directly into the camera and directly into us. But here in the courtroom, um, it's just it's a it's a very it's a very striking and effective technique that gets used throughout it, but it really stands out uh, in the court scenes, and it helps Denzel. I mean, he's an amazing actor anyway; he doesn't need the help, but like it really makes him sort of. I mean, he's literally center stage, right? Yeah. It's like he's squarely framed, talking right to us. Here's what you need to know. I also really like the way that this opening salvo is framed for purposes of us talking about it in Movie Club, which Denzel flat out says, like, you're not going to see what you've seen on television and in the movies. There's not going to be a surprise witness. There's not going to be, you know, a sudden, like, Matlock moment, essentially. Yeah. And... We've watched a lot of movies for Movie Club, and there have been quite a few of those in the movies we've watched. So that is a trope for a reason, and I, I thought it was fun that he called it out as saying, like, no, this is more grounded, what we're doing here. And yeah. for the most part, he was telling the truth. There will be one or two moments that I think we will hit on later uh, that, <laughs> that perhaps would not happen in a real courtroom. But um, for the most part, I, I thought it was, you know, measured uh, uh, portrayal of the legal process. It was not necessarily the outlandish stuff we've seen in Do some Do you have any movies. thoughts about the um, – opening salvo for the defense side. Yeah, I think I mean it's 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 interesting how I mean he they, they both like I mean he uses uh when when Miller is giving his opener he just lists, you know, several facts. He's like these, you know, here are the facts. Here's what you need to know. And she does the same thing when she starts making her argument. And I guess it's not really clear whether she was going to do that anyway or if she's just a very savvy litigator who's kind of is like okay, you you and she's Mary Steenburgen is a really interesting performance cuz she's like She's got sort of this like sly smile and delivery for much of her, uh, like much of the time she's um, on screen. Um, but you can kind of see, I mean, I could be reading too much into it, but you can kind of see the way she's like, okay, you want to make the argument this way? I have facts too. Here are the facts you need to know. For my, I mean, this is not groundbreaking stuff. They're each arguing their own facts, but even right. her delivery of it mirrors his own. And it's just like, it's not as simple as what he says. Our version also makes sense if you're willing to listen. So we go from those two um, opening arguments where, like you said, Alex, they both lay out facts that they purport to be true, yeah. that the jury has to weigh. And then we get into 
uh, a run in this movie yeah. where we have quite a few witnesses put on the stand, primarily from um, Joe and, and Andrew putting them on the stand. I wanted to run through some of those and what we learned from them, how they were kind of important to proving the case. Um, the first sort of – I want to break these up into like little groups, I yeah, think. Yeah, sure. The first group is Joe says he basically needs to prove that the partners knew Andrew had AIDS. Mm-hmm. So we get a, a, a witness on the stand who is a woman who worked with the partner who originally saw the lesion on Andrew's face who knew what those were and that they were associated with AIDS because this woman also had AIDS and mm. worked with him in the past. Yeah. And Andrew did his own research. He talks about that woman when they have the scene yeah. at the library, which is pretty interesting because he's just, it's basically just the two of them on the case. I'll have a note about that later. But this is interesting. And when when he puts her on the stand and, you know, they 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 talk about, um, you know, how she how she has she has AIDS, but she, she um, acquired it through a transfusion, not... Um, through sexual intercourse or anything like that. And that gets us started on this thread of like, what is the, what is the defense? The defense has clearly has this theory that like certain kinds of AIDS you attain are like different than others or rather your method of, of uh, acquiring it. But yeah, I mean the, the, the bottom line here is that they're trying to show these guys, or at least one of them at least knows what an AIDS related lesion looks like. And you're right too, to point out Alex that it's, um, it's like the plaintiffs here are trying to prove discrimination within a bucket of possible discrimination. It's not just you're discriminating against someone who has a health condition, a disability. Mm-hmm. It's you're discriminating against the gay man who has that because you blame him for his health condition. Yes, right, exactly, and that right. becomes a runner of this this whole stretch of the movie, them explaining that. Mm-hmm. The next thing that, that Joe sets out to prove – is that Andrew was a good attorney. Yeah. We get a couple of witnesses on this point. Um, first one I wanted to ask you guys about was the client who was brought up <laughs> that Andrew won the client's case. And uh, we have some some pretty interesting testimony about how that was perceived. In that deposition, you said that you were impressed and delighted with the quality of Andrew Beckett's work. Do you recall saying that? In all honesty, I was delighted with certain aspects of Andy's efforts. But in general, I found the work to be merely satisfactory. Uh Uh-huh. Do you agree that a bologna sandwich is a satisfactory meal, whereas... uh, Caviar and champagne, roast duck and baked Alaska. That might be considered a delightful meal. We object. These gastronomical comments are irrelevant to these proceedings, Your Honor. No, they are not irrelevant. Your Honor, five months ago, this witness characterized Andrew Beckett as caviar. Now he's calling him a bologna sandwich. I think that the jury is entitled to know what powerful force has caused him to change his mind. He hasn't changed his mind. He's amplified his answer. Objection sustained. All right. All right, Mr. Laird, explain this to me like I'm a four-year-old, okay? Did Andrew Beckett win your lawsuit for you? 
Yes, we won. Oh, congratulations. That must have been a very satisfactory experience. Yeah, it's a memorable scene, the uh, satisfactory versus delightful, the reference to the bologna sandwich and caviar. Um, lawyers love their analogies, as we, we know. Love we but love them, folks. I thought it was an interesting moment of courtroom procedure, just that, yep. that uh, they object to to this, saying, look, he changed his answer. That's From not, the deposition, From the right? deposition. Yeah, and right. doesn't make any sense. And, um, you know, sometimes a judge is going to go one way or the other. And and the judge said here, look, he's he amplified his yes. answer and, and allows that kind of testimony. So I like it as a moment where... You know, I think in the in the beginning of this show, I described Joe's character as, you know, a little more scrappy in the way he approaches the law. And that analogy of, you know, bologna or caviar is exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He's got all these sort of colloquial ways to make the jury understand his points. And I think that's his real skill as a courtroom litigator. Yeah. That people really understand what he's talking about. He's not one of those, you know, highfalutin attorneys that mm -hmm. you can't follow their arguments. Yeah. So he does a really good job with that. We have some other testimony in this st stretch. We have Andrew's secretary. We have um, a paralegal who talks about discrimination she's allegedly faced as an African-American woman yeah. at the firm. Um, but, you know, we, we do move on from there to eventually Andrew himself taking the stand. I wanted to discuss that and um, – how you guys felt about at this point, it's been months that this trial has been dragging on. He's clearly much sicker. They put him up on the stand. What do you guys think about his testimony? Well, I, I feel a little foolish. We haven't even said this yet. And I know that this is uh, we'll talk a little bit about the real people that um, somewhat inspired the story uh, in the next segment. But the, one of the great things about this movie, if you're really looking to get your legal fix, is like, obviously, it's taking place in a courtroom. It's a it's a workplace uh, discrimination case. But it's. The, the workplace is a law firm. So you get sure. like lawyerception here. Um, <laughs> and like the thing that's very striking here is like they, the sort of foundation of Miller's examination of uh, Andy is just what drew him to the law in the first place. And he gives uh, quite a quite an eloquent answer on that. Are you a good lawyer, Andrew? I'm an excellent lawyer. What makes you an excellent lawyer? I love the law. I know the law. I excel at practicing. What do you love about the law, Andrew? <laughs> I... <laughs> many things. Uh, uh, what I love the most about the law? Yes. Is that every now and again, not often, but occasionally, you get to be a part of justice being done. is quite a thrill when that happens. This, of course, is followed by, uh, you know, cross-examination by the other side and a jarring scene where the, uh, the defense counsel asks him if he can see a lesion on his own face from a few feet away. He is left with uh, saying no because they were not the same type of lesions that he was experiencing at the time, and um, you, you you get to see Denzel really thinking on his feet and and saying, "Look, we can't leave it off here. We can't let the jury sort of sort of let that sink in." Mm -hmm. And he hops back up, uses the same mirror, uses the same prop, and shows the the lesions that are that are currently on 
Tom Hanks's chest. Which and, more resemble the ones that were on his face at the time. Yes. So, and it is, yes. it's a tough scene to see. It is, uh, but it, it's, um, it's very effective in terms of uh, it leaving the jury with understanding really that that it was not a great point that the defense was making because yes. they were not the same type of lesions. This is also when the defense starts to get like deeply personal. We get into like his his encounters at the movie theater and like the about how he's like reckless and could have infected his partner and all of this, which is not like squarely material to the question of whether he was discriminated against in the workplace or anything like that. But uh, and you see it start to take a toll on counsel as well. Mary Steenberg and goes back to the table at one point. It's just like this. I hate this case or whatever she says. It's it, it, we really get ratcheted up here quite a lot. Yeah, it it that is sort of the height of the nastiness coming from mm-hmm. the big loss side there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're nearing the end of the trial. We do have um, a final scene in trial where Wheeler, the big law partner, is on the stand. He's talking about um, his views on what makes a good attorney and why he um, lost confidence in Andy purportedly. Yeah. Well, he's so we, – we'll move on soon. But like Robards is just so lawyerly up there. When he's yeah. like – he's like he's like rebuking him for like with your innuendos and locker room fantasies. Well, it's just like he's so demeaning. And this gets to your that, – that they are both attorneys, right? Yeah. That the, the yeah. people testifying are themselves attorneys. Yes. And so you get a little sparring there and yeah. – the the line about the, the back and forth between Denzel about who makes rules and it's, oh yeah you it's good yeah <laughs> it's good stuff and I think it ultimately comes come it's an important part of of how the jury ultimately comes out we do have one of our more dramatic things that happen in the courtroom even though Denzel set us up in his opening statement to say there wouldn't be any big surprises or or you know movie style antics in this trial the one thing that does happen is that. Andy collapses in the middle of yeah. this testimony. I had a question, which we, we probably could save it for right or wrong, but I figured let's just get it out of the way here. Would something like that lead to a mistrial? Because it is so sort of shocking for the jury to see something like that. I don't know. It's probably, it might be unanswerable because it could be very factual or I whatever. bet it would be fact dependent. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, and they have a version of that debate over the lesion question, right? Don't they say like that's going to uh, non, you know, unfairly influence the jury? Exactly. And yeah. that's what made me think of the question, yeah. which is if opening your shirt to show some legion, lesions uh, could could unfairly prejudice the jury, then what would someone collapsing and almost dying in Fair the question. I would normally... Um, really quibble with the idea of, do we need this dramatic collapse? However, we have had the parallel stories of Andy getting sicker and sicker yeah. as this thing has carried on. It's also and a deadly disease. It's a deadly disease. <laughs> I mean, and yes. I think it kind of brings those two worlds together right into that courtroom. Mm-hmm. We move on, though, to jury deliberations. And you don't always see behind the curtain in movies like this about what the jury's thinking. Well, but this is a great one. Well, yeah, well, it's funny. I, not not to rehash last week's episode. We didn't even talk about in A Time to Kill when uh, they're at like a seafood restaurant or something. Multiple this is, times. Right. Multiple times. This is just, we we just get one and you said like, yeah, this is a very sort of intimate part of the, um, you know, outside of 12 Angry Men. I mean, it just doesn't get a lot of screen time. Guys, let's open it back up and talk about A Time to Kill. Again. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to bring us back too far. I was like, there are a couple different ways to show the way juries deliver they have their claw crackers or they're just in their own like chambers. It will shock you both to know I prefer this version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, same, same. What I like about this, and I think we're, we're going to hear a little bit of it um, because it is so good. It sums up everything you've just watched. So as a movie viewer, it's also really helpful because it kind of we get a lot of testimony in this stretch of the movie. You're really starting to think like, oh, I've seen tons of people on the witness stand. This is pulls that all together really neatly. 
Uh, they are saying that he wasn't a good lawyer, that he was mediocre. And the fact that they gave him the most important lawsuit that they ever had for one of their most important clients, now they say that that doesn't prove anything because that was just a test. What did they call it, a carrot? What's yeah, what's that, Doc? To see if he would rise to the occasion. Okay, okay, so say I got to send a pilot into enemy territory and he's going to be flying a plane that costs $350 million. Who am I going to put in that plane? Some rookie who can't cut the grade because I want to see if he can rise to the challenge? Or am I going to give that assignment to my best pilot? My sharpest, my most experienced, my top gun, the very best I got. And I just don't get that. Would somebody please explain it to me? Like I'm a six-year-old? <laughs> yeah, I love it because this juror sort of stands in maybe for in a similar role to the Denzel character or any maybe the, any other viewer that, that was out there in 1993, which is maybe skeptical of, of, of a case like this and not it's, it, you know, it was very much not 2021 at that point. And people were very homophobic and very afraid of AIDS. And, and, uh, but so to see this guy who I think the camera glances at him at n- a number of times throughout he's, the trial, he's and got they, a few nonverbal exchanges with one of the partners when he's on the witness stand. Right. Yeah. And so you maybe are thinking that this guy is skeptical of the case. And then to hear the monologue, Amber, as you said, that, that, to come from him and sort of sum up everything that we've seen, it neatly ties together the way that you yourself are feeling sort of in the in in, in having watched all that testimony. And now that we've heard how the jury is viewing it as he's sort of the proxy for the whole jury there, um, Joe and Andrew win the case and they read out a very large uh, around five million dollar yep. um, ultimate award here for him. The firm says they'll appeal it. Um, and then we transition back to the outside of the courtroom side of the movie. You see Andrew in the hospital. His family is there. Joe comes by to see him. All the family and friends. And then the movie ends a, a beat later um, at Andrew's wake. So um, a really affecting musical score is a uh, song is playing there. You see um, all the family and everybody gathered. It's a really lovely way to wrap out this movie. So that brings us to the point in the show where we talk about what the movie gets right or wrong about the law. Um, I got a bunch I want to tick through today with you guys. I wanted to start with back in that run of um, witnesses on the stand. Yeah. There is one standout moment for me that I think is a little wacky. Um, Bradley Whitford is an attorney at the firm. He's on the stand. Joe is talking to him about um, what happened with that missing file. That's the gist of what they're discussing. But then we have a moment where he starts essentially treating him as a hostile witness yeah. and demanding that and he, he answer it's his own witness, it's his own witness <laughs> demanding that he answer whether or not he's gay. Yes, and we should mention in quite graphic terms and yeah. uh, things that you would not hear in a movie, even by you know the the the, the heavy in a movie in 2021. I don't think, but um, yeah, it's jarring and it's jarring to everybody in the courtroom. Well, and that's not even, and that's only half of the thing. Like you know, you know. If, if a lawyer were to have an outburst like that, he's clearly driving at something. But the real sort of breach in procedure, I think, is what you want to talk about. Like 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 a few yeah. moments later, Amber, obviously he is rebuked by the judge for doing this, which would happen. But then it, it's it. That's when we kind of lose the lose the thread. We on do. What's within reasonable expectation? We get an objection. Yeah. Thank goodness, because that obviously. would happen in real yes. life. The judge 
tells Joe to cut it out and then says like, yeah, exactly. He says like, come up and talk to me. What are you doing? And um, then we get a monologue to the jury. Joe turns around and does a sweeping hand gesture and says what he's up to. Everybody in this courtroom is thinking about sexual orientation, you know, sexual preference, whatever you want to call it. Who does what to whom and how they do it? I mean, they're looking at Andrew Beckett. They're thinking about it. They're looking at Mr. Wheeler, Miss Conine, even you, Your Honor. They're wondering about it. <laughs> Trust me, I know that they are looking at me and thinking about it. So let's just get it out in the open. Let's, let's, let's get it out of the closet. Because this case is not just about AIDS, is it? So let's talk about what this case is really all about. The general public's hatred, our loathing, our fear of homosexuals. And how that climate of hatred and fear translated into the firing of this particular homosexual. My client, Andrew Beckett. Please have a seat, Mr. Miller. In this courtroom, Mr. Miller, justice is blind to matters of race, creed, color, religion, and sexual orientation. With all due respect, Your Honor, we don't live in this courtroom, no, do we? Again, uh, this is yet another monologue that Denzel Washington delivers uh, immaculately and uh, uh, beautifully. But yeah, I mean... To, he, to, to turn around when the judge has called you to like to talk about like the, the stunt you just pulled. And he's like talking to the jury, talking to the gallery. It's uh, just that I ain't mean, right. I understand why it's in the movie because yeah, they're trying course. to drive that point home. But yeah, yeah, yeah. for purposes of us saying what's wrong legally, that's would never happen. Um, we've talked before about the sort of collapsing of the types of law people practice. I mean, we have to talk about it. It appears he's some sort of personal injury lawyer. Yes. And Joe. Then, Joe is, yeah. Yes. But then he's taking on this huge workplace discrimination claim against a very powerful law firm, apparently by himself. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that an attorney who does, you know, plaintiff's work in terms of wrongful, you know, wrongful injury or personal injury or products liability could Perhaps, um, you know, their firm, I guess it would make more sense if they were a big plaintiff's firm that's and they handled what more I was stuff thinking. for him to be an expert in both. Yeah, maybe. that's that, Yeah, because like, oh, and clearly he's a talented litigator, right? So he can transplant those skills, but he has, and that's probably just for a sake of storytelling thing, but like no associates except for Andy, I suppose, is helping him. I mean, while we're on that bucket of, of complaints here, I'm a little confused about what law this suit is even brought under. So they skirt around it quite a bit in the movie. And I think there's a real reason they skirt around it. My guess is this. Bill, I think a little later you wanted to talk to us a bit about the real events that inspired this movie. But what I suspect happened is that those real events happened before the Americans with Disabilities Act was yeah. enacted, which right. was 1990. I but this <laughs> movie is 93. So they kind of don't – they just sort of don't say what what <laughs> discrimination suit they're bringing in under. But I bring this up just to say a couple 
couple bars on that because I can't I can't stop with my employment love of employment law. One, this could have been under a number of laws. It could have been federal Americans with Disabilities Act. It could have been state or local regulations. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've got a few options here. But one thing is that they never would have gotten that jury verdict that they did if it was under the ADA because. Punitive and compensatory damages there are capped at three hundred thousand mm. dollars. Oh, um, look at you! So, just wanted to throw that out there. I think it's under something else under the well, rubric of this movie. <laughs> sure, I thought yeah. they mentioned um, when they're reading in the law library. I thought they mentioned the Rehabilitation Act of nineteen seventy three. They do, but I think by nineties logic, you would have filed this under the ADA. So I think so. I think that what you're saying is exactly right, which is that they it would have been too. Um, too short of a time frame to make a movie that was made in 1993 take place in 1989. But I think it essentially takes place before before mm-hmm. because those are when sort of the real events that some of it is based on. And, yeah. you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think you do see that in movies sometimes where a movie maybe like spiritually takes place <laughs> like five years earlier. But yeah. everyone has smartphones and, you know, modern cars and stuff. So it's sort of. I'm also sure that this doesn't didn't bother anybody but me because <laughs> this is say, the kind I mean... of thing where, you know, everybody <laughs> on some gut level understands that there are statutes, both federal, state, local, that prohibit discrimination in the workplace. Like people get that as a basic idea. Yes. They just a few times they just call this a wrongful termination suit. They they just play it a little fast and loose, but I don't think anybody except the true employment law nerds would care. Uh one small note, uh, I really like Denzel uh, handing out business cards in the hospital to the guy in the wheelchair. Very funny to me. <laughs> uh, don't know. I mean, I can't speak to the relative uh, factual accuracy of that. Uh, I'm sure people do that, but it was funny. There's a lot of fun beats <laughs> that build Denzel's character and and give you insight into exactly who he is as a guy. They keep calling him the guy from TV. They do. There's also the scene where they're at um, the Halloween party at Andy's apartment, oh, yeah. and he comes dressed as a lawsuit, and it, oh, all yeah. that means Loved is that he's it. in oh, a regular suit, <laughs> and he's got like complaints and stuff like yeah. pinned to him, yeah, which I absolutely love. Very good. Uh, you you mentioned it already, Amber. Bill, I know you have some. Uh, you've done some research on the sort of. Uh, I don't know, the, the history behind yeah, this or I the, mean, the, the inspiration, which led to some uh, litigation of its own. Right. I mean, we talk a lot in this segment about what people got wrong, and we sometimes say we're going to talk about what they got right. And I think here they maybe got some – they got too much stuff right to what actually <laughs> sure. happened in real life because <laughs> after fealty. the film came out, uh, TriStar, which was the studio uh, – Demi, uh, the screenwriter and producer Scott Rudin, uh, were all sued by the family of a guy named Jeffrey Bowers uh, over accusations that the movie had been too heavily based on his life and that an agreement had been made that they would pay for his life rights uh, and that that contract had been breached by not paying his family. Um, Bowers was an attorney in New York at Baker and McKenzie, uh, which was then the largest law firm in the world, still a very large law firm. And uh, he claimed he had been fired because it was revealed that he had AIDS. Uh, He died in 1987, but he eventually won his case against Baker and McKenzie. The lawsuit over the movie eventually settled on confidential terms. Um, The filmmakers did add a credit to the story that Mm. says that it was, uh, quote, inspired in part by Bowers' story. Um, Another purported basis for the movie was uh, a guy named Clarence Kane, who was an attorney at the um, the then firm of Hyatt Legal Services, uh, their Philadelphia office. So he was actually based in Philadelphia. Um, 
Kane won a ruling in 1990 that he had been terminated wrongfully because of his diagnosis with AIDS. Um, two months after that, he uh, died himself. Um, the line, the, the the reason I bring up Kane's story, I think is interesting, is that the line in the film uh, during the law library scene where they're ta- where they're first sort of breaking down how they will make this case. When they mention um, the social death preceding uh, the actual death from HIV and AIDS, that appears to have been pulled directly from the Cain ruling. It's Cain v. Hyatt. If anyone wants to go look it up, it's from 1990. Um, There's a particularly stirring passage that comes after that line about social death that was referenced in the movie. Quote, to conclude that persons with AIDS are stigmatized is an understatement. They are widely stereotyped as indelibly miasmic, untouchable, physically and morally polluted. These and related prejudices substantially curtail the major life activities of AIDS victims. They are shunned socially and often excluded from public life. As the Supreme Court has observed, quote, society's accumulated myths and fears about disability and disease are as handicapping as they are, as are the physical limitations that flow from actual impairment. So that, you know, the references that were made in the movie to all of that stuff, it really was pulled from some real life cases that that involved this kind of stuff. And from from what I could understand, there were a number of cases all around the country about this kind of thing during the height of the AIDS crisis. I do think it's moving to know there's real people that this movie was so closely based on, especially since the movie's very affecting. So that just adds an extra layer of authenticity here. Um, this kind of leads us into our final takeaways about this movie. This is our ninth movie for this run of Pro Se Movie Club. And we've seen a lot about, you know, how cinema views the law, how the law can be wielded. And what I actually love about Philadelphia the most is that it shows both the best of it. So Andrew, who has this pure love of the law, mm-hmm. Joe, who who comes around, puts aside his own bias to, you know, see things in a different way, but also the worst of it. You see big law partners who act illegally toward Andrew and who really have very almost no compassion for his struggle with AIDS at this time. And this movie to me is the one that has sort of the broadest sweep. You know, the, the good and the bad is all here. And you see Andrew as this man who's centered his whole life and sense of self around being a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not unusual in the profession because it does require so much of your time and energy. You study for years to become a lawyer. It takes a certain level of commitment to that being a central part of your life. So what I take away from this movie is that the ultimate indignity can be losing your job and losing that sense of self that lawyers often have. And it's just, it proves how powerful a career in the law can be. Uh, One thing that really stuck out to me on this viewing is um, there's a scene, we didn't talk about it, but um, when they're about to prep Andrew's testimony in his apartment, um, he he says sort of bluntly, and again, not to keep harping on the like nerdy uh, cinematography stuff, but again, he's looking into the camera when he says it and he says, you know, there's a possibility I may not be alive to see the end of this trial. And that really got me thinking because I, you know, we've, I've both written and we've talked on the show about, you know, whether it's like products liability litigation or things like that, where the plaintiffs at issue are long dead and like these these fights last for years by their estates and things like that. Um, in this movie, he he is technically alive when the when the verdict is is handed down, but he he passes away soon thereafter, and it's um, it's just a very stirring sort of testament to like why it's worth pursuing justice, even if you yourself are not. Um, 
may not be there to to enjoy its benefits or anything like that. And of course, given all of the um, sort of social stigmas that were floating around uh, people who had AIDS at this time, uh, it's it, it it resonates even more. Um, and it's just a great uh, sort of encapsulation about why these fights are worth having. Yeah, I mean, I, I second everything that you guys said. I, I, I think I was struck the most this time having watched this as our ninth and final movie about the representation that you saw in in the movie. It it was a pioneering film at the time. It was the first major studio film to deal with the AIDS crisis. But for a movie that came out in 1993, I think it was unusual that it was uh, a major studio film that where the two leads were a black man and a gay man. And we haven't seen that a whole lot in the movies we've talked about. We still, unfortunately, to this day, don't don't see it quite as much as I think we would we would love to in the in the legal industry in yeah. big in big firms. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that that jumped out at me. Um, uh, just just watching it now in 2021, where you're happy that that movie was made in 1993, and um, hopefully it moved the ball forward. And um, you know, I'm happy happy that we did it, and happy that we talked about it. Thanks for joining us today on the Pro Se Movie Club. It is our last one for this series. Um, next week, if you join us on regular Pro Se, we are going to do a little wrap up, talk about, you know, some takeaways we have from watching nine legal movies in a row. Guys, I think, I mean, I don't mean to get ahead of our skis. I think we're ready to, like, make a movie. <laughs> I feel ready also. Pro I Se, think, the movie. I, I think mean, I'm ready to be a movie lawyer. <laughs> Yes. That's even better because yeah. you can apparently do whatever you want. <laughs> yes, it was a it was a lot of fun, guys. I'm glad we did it. We also have a bunch of other people to thank for this show and all the other ones in Movie Club, including our producer, Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Ashley Shadow. And see you again next week on Regular Pro Se. <laughs>